Karma Yoga by Bhikshu Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Publisher's Note The lessons included in this book are written by an Asiatic for the English-speaking peoples of the world and suffer from the fact that the mother tongue of the writer is not English nor Sanskrit and that his metaphysic is Oriental. Much of the teaching that is given here has been given out privately in the yogic schools of the select, though not in a practical form herein presented. The excuse for the book is the need of arrangement before doubting, inquiring minds prepared to question every argument and assertion of facts and theories so that they fit in with the composite scheme presented by the yogi philosophy. The publishers take the liberty to call the attention of the reader to the great amount of information condensed in the space given to each lesson. Students have told us that they have found it necessary to read and study each lesson carefully in order to absorb the varied information contained within its pages. They have also stated that they have found it advisable to reread the lessons several times, allowing an interval between each reading and that each rereading they would discover information that had escaped them previously during the study. This has been repeated to us so often that we feel justified in mentioning it that other readers might avail themselves of the same course and plan of study. One other matter. The book is intended to be completed by the personal interest of the reader and his desire to know the teachings better, a desire that the latent light culture is prepared to meet freely. We do not take leave of the reader in presenting the book to him. We desire better acquaintance, as we are also seekers of the light. Latent Light Culture, Agents of the Yogi Publication Society in India There will be a brief summary of each lesson narrated at the beginning of each lesson. Lesson 1 What the West Thinks of Eastern Yogi Methods History of Karma Yoga, Buddhist and Jain views thereof, their law of karma, the Hindu view and caste system. In the beginning was the deed, free will and predestination, the doubter dissected, the power and nature of faith, mantra. It was said by Yogi Ramachaka, page 117 of the Advanced Course in Yogi Philosophy and Oriental Occultism, that Many Western seekers after truth have complained that the philosophies of the East were not adapted to the needs and requirements of the Westerner, as the conditions of life were different in the two different parts of the world. The trouble with these objecting Western students is that they have considered the Eastern teachings to be fit only for those who could spend their life in dreaming, meditation, and in seclusion far away from the busy life. But this is a great mistake. Every true yogi recognizes that even in the East, a life of activity is right and proper for those who are thrown into it, and that to shirk its duties or run away is a violation of the great law Dharma called also God's law. And to that end is herein pointed out the beauties and advantages of that important branch of yogi philosophy and praxis known as Karma Yoga. The phrase karma, yoga, has passed through many vicissitudes in its meaning, which has changed from time to time, and from creed to creed, till now it is treated as equivalent to what is known as the doctrine of non-attachment. 
In the East, in India especially, due to the peaceful occupation by the governing race, the depressing fact has come to prevail that so many Indians will do just what the actual requirements of their vocation demand and nothing else, unless the state makes it worth their while. To these, as also to the Western peoples who on their part have to learn to appreciate more than ever the meaning of equanimity, to subdue their feverish haste with a little more evenness of the mind, the following lessons on the need of the new orientation towards the doctrine of work, karma yoga, are issued. The word karma has been derived from the Sanskrit root kra, meaning to effect. And it is interesting to trace the history of the word karma. At about the time that the Bhagavad Gita was taught in its original form, there prevailed, even in that antique period, doubts as to what karma was and what not. And the Lord Krishna settled the doubts by suggesting that karma in brief was the emanation, visarga, that gave rise to the ideas, bhava, which taking shape or form came to be, bhuta, Bhagavad Gita 8-3. Later teachers and religionists commenting hereon made it out that karma referred to the acts enjoyed by the sacred scriptures of their times and taught that karma yoga was the adoption of the religious life and praxis of yoga as ordained thereby, against the perversion and exaggeration of which teaching still later thinkers said that karma yoga meant only submission to the duties and responsibilities of the normal life, which duties and responsibilities the yogi was always to recognize, and the yogi was not to feel enamored of the life of the cloister or of the wanderer. In its most modern sense, the karma yogi is the yogi who, whether a gani yogi, or bhakti yogi, or raja yogi, or no yogi at all, is still a purposeful man or woman, having settled views, a grihi, householder, practicing yoga while actively in with the world's turmoil. And it is in this sense that we shall take the phrase karma yogi and the scheme of life for such a karma yogi to be karma yoga. Prince Siddhartha, who was Gautama the Buddha, enlightened, said the very same thing as did Krishna in the first twin verses of the Dharmapada. He says, All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on thought. It is made up of our thoughts. If a man acts or speaks with an evil thought, pain follows him as the wheel follows the foot of the ox that draws the chariot. This is the world-renowned law of karma. The law that is the fullest application of the Christian teaching that as you sow, you shall reap. The scientific axiom that action and reaction are equal and opposite, pushed to its logical conclusions on the planes of thought that govern, regulate, and underlie action. To the Buddhists, this law of karma stands pragmatically for the god of the theists and for much more. For whereas in the Christian religion, as in Islam, God can override karma by his great power of mercy, in Buddhism and in Jainism, karma can in no sense be appeased. Evil must be suffered by pain. Good acts are rewarded by subsequent pleasures. There is no way out of the situation than to submit to karma and to make the best of it, realizing thus the meaning and use of pain, says the Jaino-Buddhist view. This law of karma governs the horizon of view of the ethics of the Asiatic peoples, regulating the ethics with its very stern hand. 
Lejane owes his transcendental altruism, whereby he forbears from injury of every living creature and prays periodically for forgiveness from sins unconsciously committed, entirely to his basic law of karma. To the Jain, man is continually by his actions pouring forth a karma that colors him and colors his vision, that goes into his being and in time spends itself in the reaction of effect equal to the cause as pain or pleasure. The Jain carries his altruism so far as to maintain a rest house for the aged domestic animals, where they may die peacefully. He carries it so far as to not burn lights in his house, lest moths be attracted thereby and die therein. He avoids taking meals at night so that living creation of the minute nocturnal type may not be interfered with. Nay, he even discourages travel during the rainy season when animalculi spring up everywhere in the tropical lands. Both the Jain and Buddhist have built up a most elaborate code of ethics, of what to do and what not, all based on the law of karma. And they have also divided themselves communally into the two classes, the laity, who recognized the law of karma, and the priesthood, who abided by the law, subjecting their rules of life to the law. The Hindus, however, retained their antique modes of life while recognizing the law of karma. To them, the law of action and reaction was paramount, and conformance to the law necessitated the observance of a code of ethics, which, however, they made very complex and extremely elaborate. Mankind, said the Hindu, was to be found in four classes. 1. Brahmins, priests, workers with God or workers with the law. 2. Kshatriyas, rulers, warriors, maintaining the law. 3. Vaya artisans and agriculturists abiding by the law, and four, the pachama, the slaves or serfs outside the pale of the law who knew not the good law or would not abide by it and thus continued slaves. Each class had its own code of conduct, its own rules of life, and so long as each member observed these rules, he was free to continue to be a member of his class, with the rewards and punishments, rights and responsibilities thereof, and free to enjoy the club life of his class in each commune. Any member of any class may take up any occupation of any class lesser than he in the social rank, which was, of course, governed by birth. But whether he would be accepted as member of such lower class depended on the goodwill of the community whose occupation he was taking up. Certainly, he could not remain a member of his own community thence after. Nor could anyone easily take up the profession of a higher class at all. Hindus, it has been observed, did not endeavor to admit proselytes. Because their religion depended much less on creed in which they are latitudinarians than upon the fixed customs of their castes, the character of which customs being derived from birth could not be transferred to strangers. It cannot be forgotten that the orderly state of the community suggested by the caste system of the Hindus was governed by scriptures that recognized the rights and duties of men to each other, of men to animals and plants, as well as to all dumb living existence, of men to the mightier powers manifested or latent in nature, in fire, air, water, earth, as well as in the thoughts of men. For generations, in various tongues, as the ancient people moved on from Egypt and Persia, Iran, to India, and the further east, they saw and sang of how man should act towards the world around him. 
and how he should praise glory and appease power, of how he must put down evil and nourish the good. And they chanted it and taught it all in the Gathas, in the Vedas, in Puranas, and in many other forms of poetry and prose. The textbooks of the Karma Yoga of the ancients were legion, but the teachings thereof are still living and we shall inquire into their rationale and use the best of what is available to us. Look you, in very ancient times they did not call on any god at all. In the beginning they said was the deed, the act. There was no god necessary to stand intermediary between the act and its effect, reward or punishment. Every act had its effect or reaction equal and opposite. Yes, equal and opposite. Herein is the evidence of all scriptures which say, in effect, Thus did they, thus sang they, thus thought they, thus, as in these Puranas, relating of noble deeds and valiant conduct, thus, as in these fantasies and songs of the Gita and Gatha, Vedas and Zend, Chandas, thus, as in the heights of speculation of the Upanishads and Brahmanas. Go thou then, neophyte, karma yogi, and do likewise. Sing thou chants like unto the ancient chants. Sing thou out the joy or pain in thyself, but let it be a song. Work thou out deeds or the deed before you as the best of them, learned in the law, would do, as the ancients are said to have done. Think thou out the thoughts of the Upanishads, of how thoughts themselves lose in the stillness of silence all their sting and return strengthened to solace the aching soul. The forging of earthly chains, says a master, is the occupation of the indifferent. It is folly to reduplicate these by persistent regrets for the past, by present cowardice, or by fear of the future. It is eternity that man's mistakes for the past, present, and future. You are what you did in the past. You are here, Lord of the present. Your future will be inseparable from yourself. Such is the teaching of the Hindu yogi philosophy which combines both free will and predestination in its excellent system of ethics and in its world scheme. Predestined are you by the weight of force of your own karma. Your past acts, thoughts, words, deed, free will, have you such as you are to act and you will be as you act now. As you sow, you will reap. Is truly an universal axiom, which the Christian takes to refer to this world of effects only, whereas the Hindu takes it to have force on the moral plane governing the physical as well. Act thou, therefore, when opportunity confronts you, responding to it, meeting it bravely, utilizing it actively. Do what thou wilt, says the Masters shalt be the whole of the law, of dharma, of karma. Only he who doeth is the karmi. He who wills to do it and doeth is the karma yogi. The deed is the karma, his future, his destiny, the harvest of his thoughts and acts. Your deed is the expression of your will, the will in you. Say then to yourself, I will, and act. So acting shalt thou not sin, says the Lord Krishna. On no account hesitate. The yogi teachers are very distinct on this point. Reflect, certainly, before the act, but let not indecision foul the reflection. If the authors of the French Revolution had been arguing it out, repeating, reflecting, doubting, hesitating about the consequences or about the act, the expression of their high principles, they would have become gray-haired without accomplishing anything. 
The doubter perishes, says the Hindu yogi. He rots, becomes good for nothing. Alas, doubt is the characteristic of the majority of persons, men whose actions cancel each other out. One goes on from day to day doing a little of this and a little of that, thinking a few kind and a few unkind thoughts, but not thinking any thought at all out thoroughly. Nothing gets done indeed till nightfall and body and mind are changed, changed beyond recall. What meaning hath any of this change, ask a yogi? The doubter is really an ignorant person in many ways, for he doubts the efficacy of the unerring karmic law, the law of righteousness, dharma, on which all the universe is founded. He doubts himself. He doubts whether he who can think, who has to act, can act. He doubts the world around. He doubts the great purpose of nature, of nature that thrills with motion, with activity, that buds out and expands, becomes great and greater, Brahma, continually, always. And what, after all, is doubt but ashrada, want of faith, weakness of the will, evidence that the man is puny, that his eye is the eye of a weakling, of a decrepit, of a coward, not of a god, not of a lord of creation born with the right to act, that man is. In this, then, shall be the ordinance, Sastra, for you karma yogi in the dictum of do what thou wilt, which shalt be for the whole of the law, teaching you comprehensively what to do, what to avoid, this the only ordinance. Do what thou wilt, then do nothing else. We shall repeat it constantly, without end, that you may be unified of will, that in all your act you may bring all the universe that is of you, that in your act the whole of you, and not the puny portion of you, miscalled the eye at the threshold, at the outer gate of consciousness, may act and impress itself on the event that anyhow must be. And it is an excellent thing, no doubt, to make up your mind definitely. It gives all the arguments a certain sharpness, a certain definiteness, till a point is reached, and in time reached automatically, habitually, at which they suddenly issue forth to produce a definite result. And herein, look you, it is a matter of comparative indifference whether your ideations are true or not whether your ideas are exact representations of the thing. What is of the highest importance is that whatever you believe in should be believed to be true. The Hindus speak from very ancient times, especially about this. They distinguish between Rita, what is accepted as true and hence is superior, more useful, more effective than truth, Satya. God himself in the Hindu concept is the truth that is greater than truth. Says the Gita, each man shall have only the value, the power that is equivalent to his shraddha, his faith. That is to say, only that portion of man's mental makeup is to be taken into our calculations as effective as is the sum total of his settled convictions, of his will to power, shraddha. Says the Tatariya Upanishad. Of the Vinyamaya sheath of man that interpenetrates the mental sheath, Manomaya, Kosha, Shraddha, the believing in order to know, is the head. Rita, the judgment as to whether anything is proper or righteous, is the tolerant, Dakshina, view. Truth is its saving, Uttara, aspect, application, Yoga, is its embodiment, Atma, or self. Its remainder is greatness, Maha. 
Of course, the ancient Sanskrit is difficult to translate into modern Sanskrit, and harder still to translate into modern English. But what may be stated is that man is considered as a composite of an essence with five codes, of which the outermost is experience, ana, the next life, prana, the third mentality, manomaya, interpenetrating all of which is the higher man, the transcendent portion of man, of the thinker out of the herd called vijnana. Such a man believes a thing not because it is true, but because it has to be believed to be true for the purpose of the act necessary. This is his shraddha, the faith that moves mountains. Such a faith should not go against truth. It may transcend the literal truth, but truth is its saving grace. Uttarapaksha. Such a faith is founded on the charity of righteousness. It is countenance just because for the sake of righteousness. For the sake of the act, it has to be believed in. A concrete instance would be the faith of the soldier that killing the enemy in war was not slaughter. And such a faith does find application in everyday life. It finds ecstasy, yoga, and fulfillment, says the Upanishad. And how great the power of the faith is can be seen. It is so great that it leaves greatness as its tail, as its remainder. Yes, this is the first lesson of the real useful karma yoga, as each one believes shall he know and be. Lesson 2 Creed and Shraddha, their etymology, man defined, fear and doubt, divisions of man, the dangers of inaction, the cant of Kant's categorical imperative, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, the mantra here. In very ancient times, when the Indians and Iranians, Persians, aboded together, they had the same word for fire, or rather the same concept, which they translated later, the Iranians into fire and the Indians to righteousness. The roots of the word ria. In Parsi literature, rita became athar, fire, and the fire priest was atharvan the Atharvan corresponding to the Rithvik or Brahman, and to the Anjira, the Anjira being son of fire, Agni. Both in Persia and in India, the sense that there is something beyond this herd life to be attained, the desire to reach out to that life, was in all beings. It was the fire in them. Athar in Persia, Rita in India, Dharma in later and Buddhist Hindu parlance, Shraddha in its complete translation in Vedic times. Anyone who desired ardently, the term ardent is phonetically from the same origin as Rita, Arta, and Athar, attained it, for that was the Dharma, the law, the Talmud, Dharma's code. We find the word Shraddha to be a very ancient origin as a concept. It is the creed of the English, the faith to which he subscribes as to the flag he serves under. It is the credo of the Latin, the cretin of the Slavic, the faith to which, according to the Hindu scriptures, he shall devote himself every morn on rising up whether the sun itself has risen or not. As says the Hindu text, having devoted yourself to the work before you for the day, having taken care to exclude vanities of no use whatsoever for the day, draw up your program to which you shall devote yourself. Devote yourself wholly as if it was your creed, as if it was your joy and your necessity, 
have not only any doubts hereabout at all. There is further danger in this doubt in that it is a division of the will. We would remind our students of the first principles of the Hindu yogi philosophy as regards man, namely that he is not a unity at all. One, every individual is a permanent organization consisting of an indefinite number of living entities, each of which has thought, will, and feeling graded in a hierarchy ranging from the most vital and essential to the least vital and least indispensable. Two, the most vital entities in the hierarchy are those which have the most powerful determining action on the vital processes. They are also those which are most essential to the organization. Three, these vital entities may, during life, be called soul particles, and together they make up the soul or personality. For this soul of the human individual, besides being polypsychic, is composed of an indefinite number of streams, or threads, of consciousness coexisting in each of us, which can be variously and in varying degrees associated and disassociated, each soul particle being regarded as a thread or stream of consciousness. Yes, multiple personality is the rule and not the exception. All mankind are like unto as this, says Freighter. They wish a dozen careers, and the force which might have been sufficient to attain eminence in one is wasted on many. They are null, they drift, they are the flotsam in the ocean of life, all because of indecision. It is this indecision that becomes fear, the dweller on the threshold, so graphically described by Lord Lytton in his Zanoni, fear of the world, fear of the future, fear of oneself, fear the greatest enemy on the path of the yogi. Says H.P. Blavatsky in the voice of the silence, Beware of fear that spreadeth like the black and soundless wings of the midnight bat. Beware the moonlight of thy soul and thy great goal that loometh in the distance far away. Fear, says a brother, is the first of the pylons, gates, through which one passes in the Egyptian system of yogi discipline. And of course is the first and worst enemy in all schools of thought culture. No one can become immortal without eradicating fear, says the Hindu. Indeed, to the Hindu, no one can become a recluse or ascetic. None can be saved unless he has transcended fear. For this, there is a very good reason. Fear, like most other depressing notes, such as anger, sorrow, passion, envy, breaks down the unifying personality. The soul particles become divided into two camps hostile to each other. For there has been a suppression of the will. There has not been the judgment which residing in the single governing cell, soul particle, can weld the whole to effect an act. For look you, the deciding power, both will and judgment prove on careful analysis and study, not to be distributed through a large number of entities in the soul body, but to reside in a single cell. The will and judgment are the result of autocratic and not democratic decisions. The theory underlying these facts has been carefully expounded for Westerners by Freud in his Psychology of the Group Mind, and man is, after all, a group mind himself. Without the king, without the will, there is anarchy, crime, and there is again the sin of omission. For doing nothing is not entirely a harmless thing in every case. To refuse to save life is murder— in all decent systems of ethics, or of unwritten codes, and continuing to be subject to indecision, man becomes a rat, dog, pig, brute, idiot, or devil. He truly does die, 
does undergo metempsychosis at once, in effects. He does not continue to be a man and can scarcely hope to become God. This is what the Lord Krishna repeatedly urges in the Bhagavad Gita. Fight, Arjuna, says he. Find thy joy and pain, thy loss and gain, victory or defeat in the battle. And know that it is not joy or pain, loss or gain, victory or defeat that you experience, but the battle, the battle of life that is around, within and irrespective of you. The battle of life waits for nobody. Men live, die, or are born, enjoy or delight, irrespective of the fact that the scoffer, the decrepit, the coward, the degenerate has not joined in the fray. These may wait, as the drunkard waits for the lamp posts he cannot avoid hitting his head at, and hope that the lamp posts may pass on. But is it life? Is it not rather the backwater, the lap water of froth and foam, of dirt and foulness that is left behind for the coward to bathe under and be soiled by? Not alone that in the indecision an opportunity is passed, but that an act of God has not come to be, an act of God, a radiance should have manifested, should have illumined the battle, for the act of every individual that should have been and has not been, and the indecisive person and thus sinned or erred doubly. He has not paid his dues to the world or to himself, and he has gained nothing truly, for the God in him will act not so fully again. The God in him has gone to sleep, leaving him in a riven cloud, befogged and dry. Not that doubts should not assail anyone. It is no crime at all to be weak. Even Arjuna had his indecision, his doubts, and hence the Gita. Westerners may read McSweeney's Principles of Freedom very carefully many times. Because of our human weakness, our erring minds and sudden passions, the most confident of us may at times find himself in the mud. What then will uplift him if he has been a weaver in principle as well as in fact? He is helpless, disgraced, undone. Let him know in time we do not set up fine principles in a fine conceit, that we can easily live up to them, but in the full consciousness that we cannot possibly live away from them. That is the bedrock truth. When the man of finer faith by any slip comes to the earth, he has to uplift him a staff that never fails, and to guide him a principle that strengthens him for another faith, to go forth, in a sense that Alexander never dreamt of, to conquer new worlds. It is the faith that is in him and the flag he serves that makes a man worthy, and the meanest way may be with the highest if he be true and give good service. Let us put by the broken reed and craft of little minds, and give us for a saving hope the banner of angels and the loyalty of gods and men. The teachings of karma yoga can indeed have no value if they do not strengthen the weakling. They are not merely salatial. They are not at all obiter dicta of doctrine. They do not teach of any mediator or intercessor ready to help man when up against evil, nor of a providence that fights man's fight within himself, without man's joining the affray or against the coward. Whatever the act, of course the right act under the circumstances has been decided on, it should be done without further indecision, is the blazon cry of the karma yogi. You may take it that God has, as Jesus Christ, atoned for the sins of mankind, but of what use is that great teaching to you who are he of the great act? Muhammad Razul Allah, the peace of God be on him, 
spake of the great glory of God, but at the same time said that no one shall bear the burden of another. None other can act your act. Zoroaster, the emperor of the Dravidian Parsis, probably, you question our description, said that life should be a continuous act of putting down evil, a continuous battle with evil. His god was ever fighting the devil, Angra, Manyas. Good word, good deed, good thought was his slogan, and every act was and is, of course, good. It is delusion, says the Hindu yogi philosophy, to suppose that doing nothing has no effect. As we have said already, to refuse to save life is murder. As the Hindus say, to refuse to spread good thoughts in the world is doing harm by permitting wrong thoughts to foul the mental plane, says Evelyn Underhill. A good deal of the pseudo-mysticism that is industriously preached at the present time is crudely quietistic. It speaks of the necessity of going into the silence, and even gives lessons in subconscious meditation. A state of vacant placidity is attained in which he rests remaining in a distracted idleness and misspending the time in the expectation of extraordinary visits, believes he is united with his principle. The quietists, says Underhill, by a perversion and violation of Christian teachings, produce deliberately a half-hypnotic state of passivity. They remain from every interior and exterior act. Such a repose is treason to God. Quietism blinds a man, plunging him into that ignorance which is not superior but inferior to all knowledge. Such a man remains in himself, useless and inert, a repose that is simply laziness. A forgetfulness of God, of one's neighbor, of one's self, about the same words may apply to the aesthetic. The aesthetic thinks that by reducing himself to the condition of a vegetable, he is advancing on the path of evolution. Advance is in the direction of more continuous and untiring energy. The object of those who counsel non-action, which is very much to the fore in the modern pseudo-samyasins and baraji of India, is to prevent any inward cause arising, so that when the old causes have died out, there is nothing left. In order to escape the effects of action of the law of karma, namely continued existence, birth, death, and rebirth, they propose simply not to act or to come as near to that ideal as possible. The ascetic life is advocated not only because it approximates a state of inaction and so tends directly to obliterate karma, law, but also because withdrawal from the world is a kind of insurance against being entangled in worldly desires, which lead men astray from his true goal, emancipation, to quote the words of an American. But this is quite unphilosophical, for every effect as soon as it occurs, whether man act or not, becomes a new cause and is always equal to its cause. Truly, we may talk of renouncing the world, but the world has to renounce us for inaction to be complete. If you do not act, you drift. Do what thou wilt, then, is the categorical imperative of the Hindu yogi philosophy. How much better is this than the categorical imperative of Kant, which shouts, do your duty, without being able to tell us what that duty is. Moralists had tried for ages to formulate a moral law which should be foolproof, but had only succeeded in compiling systems of putrid morality. So it struck Kant, says a Western writer, as a bright idea, to coin his categorical imperative, do thine duty, a law which need not work at all. 
The philosophy of Kant herein is nothing but the philosophy, if any, of that Kant that has been the bane of all religious creeds since the beginning of the world. All along have men in their jealousy and vindictiveness made out codes, legislated for other men, have framed elaborate manuals of what to do and what not to do, assigned duties to individuals and congregations by birth, calling them natural duties, created castes, confusions, rituals, and what not, so that the other men shall remain a slave. They continue to suggest the advisability of doing one's duty, of being true to oneself, of not avoiding the work which nature has ordained for them from birth. But as to how to decide between the comparative claims of two conflicting duties is not taught at all in the philosophy of religious Kant. Nor think that there are many duties assigned to you either by birth or by convention. The idea of duty does not exist in the Hindu religion at all, in spite of vehement attempts made to assert that stitching is the natural duty of a man born of tailor parents, or shaving the natural duty of a barber's son. There are those, of course, they are not barbers nor tailors, but high caste, exclusive Brahmins, who assert that the tailor and barber will attain salvation only by stitching and shaving. Yes, these slaves shall serve, say they, the lords of creation, of caste. And to that end, they say that a cobbler shall worship God only by his cobbling without any worship at all. And a barber shall shave and not worship God, but worship of God is the privilege of Brahmins, who alone have to be employed for remuneration by the tailor, and the cobbler, and the butcher, and the barber, to worship God. No duty at all exists anywhere on anyone's part, no obligation, no slavery in this world, the kingdom of God. Each one is free to live as he wilt, to do as he wilt, joyously and luxuriously. And there is nothing in the way of freedom at all. You may be a tailor by birth. No need is there for you to stitch at all. Certainly, you have the heredity that you can stitch very much better you can make of stitching an art, find your joy in stitching easily than most others. But compulsion, there is none on you to be a tailor. You may become a priest and may do very well as a priest, better than most priests born. This imaginary restriction in the concept of duty or duties has been called karma banda. The obsession that man is bound or constrained to act in a particular manner either by the Ten Commandments or the Buddhist Panchashila, or by the voluminous Hindu scriptures, or by the Quran. They call this garam in Islam, considering it the thing from which one is unable to free himself. The first and greatest of all privileges is to have recognized the ordinance, do what thou wilt, as not at all in any way opposite to the karmic law. Action and reaction are equal and opposite. Thus does one become free and independent. Thus does one destroy all fear, whether of convention, of custom, of creeds, of other men, or of death itself. Says the Upanishad, It is not for the wife's sake, but for one's own sake, that the wife is dear. It is not for the children's sake, but for one's own sake, that the children are dear to one. Nor money is dear to one, for money's sake, but for his own sake is money dear. Duty really has no meaning at all to the average citizen or man of the world who is prepared to transcend it, to transcend his concepts of duty where himself is concerned. 
duty in such cases becomes a burden, and were not born a bondage. Do what thou wilt shalt be the whole of the law, is the mantra of this lesson of karma yoga. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt. Ishtapurti, the ordinance is called in the Vedas. The individual will, such as it feels to be, has always the last word, the casting vote. Read verse 1863 of the Bhagavad Gita, which, as says F.T. Brooks in his Gospel of the Gita, should be in very large print. Pray do not pass it by. Yes, the adept does what he wills and allows nothing to interfere with it. This was the ordinance long ago in Ecclesiastes 2, 7-10. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. Let thy garments be always bright, and let thine head lack no ointment. Live joyously all thy days of vanity. Thus too does the Quran say, It repeatedly asserts that it is omnipotent Lord God does not compel men to adopt one way or another. It leaves it to the choice of the individual. And free will, as being the building stone of Buddhism, wisdom's religion, freedom to act, restrained only by oneself. That self being the embodies, in shaped, past acts. Act thou, therefore, for he only can act who has a perfect self. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Lesson 3. What is karma? Self-querying necessary. Analysis of karma. It's five factors in the utmost analysis. C.F. Gita. Modern relativity says, Everyone is a lord of himself. The five factors all in oneself. The teaching is confounded by the medieval Hindus. Difficulties of language, behaviorisms, destiny, karmic ledger has no proportion. The ego is not the J nor in unity, but a multiplicity. James's definition. Just what we say that man is a diversity, how to cure vain regrets. Mantra for the act in this praxis. The Hindu yogi philosophy is nothing if it does not answer all the canons of fair criticism. This has been assured by the method of instruction called the samwada, or the dialogue, wherein the student can raise all kinds of objection before he submit to the utter obedience necessary in the earlier stages of yoga. The dialogue, it may be mentioned, by the way, is the most ancient form of religious instruction to be found, as in the Gilgamesh epic of the Babylonians, in the Teutonic myths and the chronicles of Zoroaster, as well as in the Vedas. And the dialogue is the result of the querying habit of man, a query that is not but the crown of all gifts that have come down to man. This more or less developed power of gathering one's activities together and unifying them in a conscious self that can look at itself in a mirror and see itself objectively is given to everyone. This is the vivid, controlling, attention-shifting self-consciousness, the psychical side of cerebral integration the tribunal before which the promptings of the primary conscious and repressed unconscious must come up for judgment. It is quite right, therefore, for everyone to ask himself, what is this karma or act? Where does it begin? Where does it end? Action and reaction, you say, are equal and opposite. Where then can action be avoided, or rather, can any act be done which does not provoke reaction? What are the factors of the act? 
Is there no difference between the consciously performed and the unconsciously performed act or omission? If so, what? Is there not such a thing as the agent or instrument, the vehicle or the cause of the act, itself the cause of the actor? And who, pray, is the actor? Is man the actor? If, as they say, the reaction is equal and opposite to the action, who is the enjoyer of the action? Does man live long enough to enjoy the reaction of all his acts? Yes, these and other questions, a very long chain of them, are and have from time immemorial been asked by querying minds as to the act, and the scriptures of all nations are full of answers, complete or incomplete, thereto. A complete answer is to be found in the dialogue, Bhagavad Gita. For the purposes of these lessons, only the acts of the conscious person are taken for analysis, and the Gita says that every act is prompted by knowledge. Yana, made up of the thing known, Nayam, and the knower, Paranata. And the act may be said to include the instrument Karana, the act, Karma, and the actor Karta. And going further, the Gita says that in the utmost analysis for the fulfillment of any act, five factors are required. So say the most ancient thinkers too. These five are, one, the sphere governed by or governing the act, the limit of pervasion of the act and ipso facto of its consequences, the arishtanta, two, the enjoyer of the act, akarta, he who is affected by the utmost consequences of the act, bokta, quite irrespectively of the act or actor, three various kinds of modes of the act, the ways in which the act takes effect, is performed or exhibits itself, cheshta, four various kinds of the instruments or agents of the act, the intermediaries or restrictions between the actor and the act, karana, they are called, and five, deva, god, if you please, the unseen factor, the marginal error, the uncounted host, the catalyst or decatalyst, time, etc. In so many forms does it appear. For every act, continues the Gita, whether it is performed by the body, by the tongue, as speech or utterance, by the mind, as thought, these remain five factors, the five actors. The sages commenting on this text tell us that the limit of pervasion of the act, its sphere, is the body itself, the body alone, and by the body is meant the entire kingdom, subject to each individual. His passions, desires, hopes, longings, possessions, etc., all that he identifies himself with. This is his sphere of action, rather the sphere of the reaction that follows the act inevitably. This is quite in accord with the discoveries of modern relativity, which tells us that force is a mathematical fiction, that nothing one can do can affect really any other but himself, that no two particles of matter ever come into contact, that when they get too close to each other, they both move off. The actor is not at all an integrity, but a multiplicity. This is the fundamental doctrine of the yogi philosophy. From time out of mind, they have been inculcating this precept, that the ego is not the I, that the I is but a puny figment of the waking memory, quite powerless to affect the tremendous result called the body and known as the universe. They have uttered it in the Vedas, heard it from the Puranas, and learnt it from the Gita. 
How foolish then those men of incomplete insight who, not caring to think deeply or at all, state that oneself alone is the actor. Let me quote the definition of the consciousness of the self given by James in his psychology textbook. The consciousness of self involves a stream of thought, each part of which, as I, can remember those that went before and know the things that they knew, and too can emphasize and care permanently for certain ones among these as me and appropriate to these the rest. The nucleus of the me is always the bodily existence felt to be present at the time. Whatever remembered past feelings resemble this present feeling, are deemed to belong to the same me with it. Whatever other things are perceived to be associated with this feeling are deemed to be part of the me's experience, and of them certain ones which fluctuate more or less are reckoned to be themselves constituent of the me in a larger sense. Such are the clothes, material possessions, the friends, honors, esteem which the person receives or may receive. This me is, of course, an empirical aggregate of things objectively known. The I which knows them cannot itself be an aggregate, neither for psychological purposes need it be considered to be an unchanging metaphysical entity, like the spirit or principle like the ego viewed out as of time. It is a thought at every moment different from that of the last moment, but appropriative of the latter together with all the latter called its own. All the experiential facts find room in the above description of the I, unencumbered with any hypothesis other than passing states of mind. It shows that the I is not an unity nor an integrity, but a multiplicity, and a multiplicity it is incalculable, both of the human form a body built up of billions of living entities, an impermanent aggregation of living cells, and of the human soul itself, composite of quintillions of souls, each and all non-finite compounds of fragments of anterior lives, a congeries diseased, teeming with many purposes and places, and yet in whom there is no power to persist. How are actions, karma, caused then? Says the Hindu yogi, action, karma, is a constant function in the universe. The lives in nature, man's or world's nature, always affect karma. As in idiomotor action called by us, avasha karma, irrespective of an attention or a tentative being, and the act caused. In the language of Einstein and the relativists, events are continually happening. Matter is a succession of events. The succession of events rather was called matter insofar as matter was a logical construction that could be made from a series of events, grouped together in virtue of their semblance and continuity. Not only that, according to Bertrand Russell, ABC of Relativity, page 122, every bit of matter, little or small, is at the top of its own hill in the space-time continuum. The hill is what we know about. The bit of matter is assumed for convenience. Again, says he on page 222, thereof, it is true that there are still electrons and protons that persist, but these are to be conceived as strings of connected events like the notes of a song. The world before us is then a world not of things in motion, but a world of events. Wherefrom we judge whether what comes before our vision is a behavior, Guna, or whether it is only a representation to ourselves of our own thought, karma. And first of all, we have to remember that every act, every thought is symbolic and not real. 
When we say we see a table, we use a highly abbreviated form of expression, says Russell, page 214 of the book above quoted, concealing complicated and difficult inferences, the validity of which will be open to question. In a world of relativity, because no two points of view are the same, as says Max Nordau, in every act of consciousness, man perceives a symbol of the object and never object itself. First of all, in the subject, i.e. in the field of perception of the subject, the Aristana, the whole universe is mirrored and digested by the subject, who is hence called Akarta, a Gita term for enjoyer. In this perception, which is a vibration, motion, or force, and which after all is not distinguishable from matter, there is an effect, chishta, on the perceiver, and the effect is both simple and compound, direct and indirect, i.e. via an instrument or agent, a karana. In fact, all the forces in the universe known and unknown, destiny or deva, are in every act of perception acting on the subject. So too, in every act, karma, all the forces in the subject together with all the forces in the universe are acting on every instant, event. Every event is generated not out of some preceding event, action, or cause, but out of a whole situation or complex of events, no one of which could be regarded as the cause of any event, says relativity, this being a translation into modern English of the teaching in the Bhagavad Gita, 1816. It would be idle to argue here from a sole actor and unity, and it would be more correct to argue that it was a multiplicity that was the actor in every act. Asa, great brother, says, The cry of I am I is most especially of that which above all is not the I. This is specifically seen in the old adage, Nature will out. No heterosuggestion is ever successful, says the physician Koo. If it is opposed to the conscious tastes and desires of the subject, nature is oftentimes found to constrain a man to act. Ideas that occupy obsessingly the threshold of consciousness are bound to issue in action. The self-playing consciousness no part in such acts. This is a truism made in group psychology. The will of the many and man has no consideration for any but its own purpose. This has to be understood by the karma yogi. For while man is working day and night at some trivial detail of his affairs, a giant force, the purpose of the many in him, destiny you may call it, the nature of space-time in his neighborhood as the relativists term it, may be advancing pedo claudo to overtake him. You may say that this the reaction of the action, inaugurated by man himself at some time previous, nay, it is not that alone. What reacts so far as there is reaction is only that conscious act of man's surface consciousness that may have acted, and we can see that there is no proportion therein. The reaction, though equal and opposite to the action, is still too trifling a part of the future, as destiny, deva, is the only one of the factors of the act in the future. The free will of man, such as it is, remains always unimpaired. The moral that the Jains drew from all this teaching was that it was well to avoid sinful acts, for after a man has done manifold actions that injured many lives, his pleasure-seeking relations took up all his wealth while the doer suffered in hell for his sins. The people of the Vedic times, 
drew the moral that the past was not to be regretted, but to be recognized by the neophyte karma yogi as the work of kama, heedless thought, and of manu, anger, by the mantra, kamo akarshid, manur akarshid. Kama caused it, manya caused it. Anyway, the past was not to be regretted at all. It can therefore be seen that the law of the equality of action and reaction on the mental plane has not such value to the karma yogi. He recognizes that every act is the act or function of the many, that a unity can never be the sole actor, that every action is not caused but truly effect. The karma yogi has to recognize that things cannot have happened otherwise than as they have. This is the teaching of the world. Tatha the submission to kismet that characterized Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha, and many others after him. Further, he is to recognize that this karmic ledger of each one is a peculiar record, the balance of which is struck only after death. He does not know at any date what is owed him, nor to whom all he owes debts. It is all a mess, but so it is. It leaves him only one conclusion, that nothing can excuse his inaction in any event, that nothing can exonerate him, that his free will, that is, the free will of the many in him, has always power to prevail and overpower, and that this power is exercisable by himself, i.e., by the king in him. The will and judgment are always the result of autocratic and never of democratic decisions, is a fact recognized in group psychology, and this constitutes the base of man's free will. It is a unification of many wills rather than a single will full cell in man. Such ideas as that the law of karma is a blind law, a stern justice that takes no note of men's motives, or of God's mercy, have to be given up as worthless teaching, unfit for and inapplicable to the karma yogi of all men. Behind all the apparent suffering and pain and malice of the world, the karma yogi, especially if he be the sufferer, sees transcendent beauty, thrilling energy, enduring love, and the utter radiance that enchants. And most especially, the karma yogi cannot be a fatalist. For purposes of this lesson, it is enough to recognize that though thou dost as thou wilt, what is done is not done by thee, but by many milliards of cells that are of thy makeup. Remember that every act is to be of many milliard cells, not of that fiction called the I or ego. The mantra shall be herein as follows. I shall act, yet not I, but the many that live in, that are of me. For them shall I act, so that they may find their longing and fulfillment. I shall do it, that they may live their life, which elsewise they could not. Lesson 4. Karma is thought, actually says the Gita, mind and mamas. Thought a constant function in the universe, the greater being of man. Power of thought, facing thought, the cloud, formations of thoughts, letting thoughts pass on, the use of om in calming. What, finally, in the utmost analysis, is the act or karma? The Gita has a peculiar answer. Karma, says the Gita, is the emanation, visarga, that is the generator, udbhava, kara, of images, bhava, which become beings, bhutas. 
It would be insufficient to translate karma by the word action. We can see that the word is in the ultimate meaningless. For being the product of many actors, action can only be a result or an event. Traced to the individual behind the act, we recognize the motive of the act, the thought behind the act, the thoughts which make up the act, the thought which the Gita, in its excellent analysis, calls an emanation that is the generator of images. That is what Flammarion also tells us in his great work on death and after, in three volumes. We would refer our readers to that book for the scientific proof of the theory that thought is the generator of images. In the yogi philosophy, thought is an emanation of the mind, Brahma, mind being used in the sense of a universal principle which creates and sustains the world of sensations, and through which alone the world can be interpreted. Mind, as the power of sentience, is no wise synonymous with brain, disposition, instinct, intellect, intelligence, reason, sense, soul, spirit, thought, or understanding. Mind is conscious cognition. It itself is neither one of the vehicles nor a set faculty of mental consciousness, but is a movable factor between the ego, and ego here is taken as the threshold of the act, of consciousness, each or any of the ego's vehicles. Mind is only coincident with the mental nature in an ideal situation. Mind is being when and where being is attentive and may be focused so low as in an infant's moron prejudices. That is how Westerners have defined the mind. But in the Hindu yogi philosophy, mind is only one of the aspects or factors of manas, the other being buddhi, reason, or the power of judgment, both insight and intuition, citta, the thought emanating center, antakarana, the thought absorbing faculty. We are here concerned with the manas in its aspects of reception, selection, and emanation of thoughts. We have many facts to learn yet about the mind beyond the Western analysis of the mind which divides the mind into the subjective mind, subconscious, and the objective mind. We have to be very careful not to confound these two minds with the manas of Hindu phraseology. They would rather correspond the subjective with prana and the objective with mana, one of the four factors of manas. In the province of Karma Yoga, our chief factor is the power of thought, of conscious thought. We have not to do with unconscious cerebration, nor with idiomotor action, avasha karma, for it is obvious that unconscious cerebration cannot form the subject of yoga or be used at all. All the same, we have to know that thought is a constant function irrespective of the ego. The Bhagavad Gita says that not for an instant can anyone remain without emanating thought, consciously or unconsciously. Like respiration or oxidation, thought is a constant process, but unlike the former, irrespective of the subject. For ideas are essentially motor, and if one occupies the field of consciousness, to the exclusion of incompatibles, it is bound to issue inaction. The self does not play consciously any part in such acts. Is the dictum of modern Western psychology, too. Indeed, man is continually peopling space, the thought world, with emanated thoughts, consciously and unconsciously. And by man we do not mean a puny being whose only consciousness is a little flicker of waking consciousness itself, comprising at any moment, but an insignificant fraction of his total memory. 
but a being with a consciousness extending and working over the whole range of his personality, whether instinctively or deliberately. That being does not like the former go out of existence every time man goes to sleep, but simply turns his attention to vital processes, founded at a time of life when he could not speak, and before words or other symbols could be used to bring these processes under the purview of the ordinary waking memory. This is the real man, a being endowed with a stupendous memory and activity, and an almost unlimited command over vital processes, and even over physical processes. A man such as only rare illumined geniuses are ever aware of being, but which we all are, though we know it not. Of this great Brahma being, thought is a constant function, as has already been said. Thoughts are being constantly emanated, irrespective of the self or ego. Each moment, groups of thoughts are being formed made up of likes, sadrissa, from out of thoughts already in space and those just being emanated. And these thoughts cannot be killed nor restrained at all, even by the cleverest man. Following the laws of group psychology, provisional beings, bhutas, are being constantly formed out of the heterogeneous elements, thoughts, which for a moment become combined exactly as the cells which constitute a living body, formed by their reunion, a new being, which displays characteristics very different from those possessed by each of the cells singly. That is why there arises difficulty in many practices of concentration. Half-knowledge, such as of many teachers suggests heterosuggestive bases, which do not all lead to success, they being opposed not only to the conscious tastes and desires of the subject, but also because the thought being created by idiomotor action has no consideration for any but its own purpose. The Bhagavad Gita explains this out fully in verses... 18, 59 and 60, and also in verse 3, 33. Yes, all thoughts, whether created from or passing into the depths of being, go to the makeup of one's own character, one's self. And in the finale, it is the character that governs the function of thought, a fundamental teaching of the Eastern Hindu yogi philosophy, as it is of the philosophy of the West is that every conscious thought passes down to the lower stratum, and then and there becomes an element of our being, partaking of our conscious energy and playing its part in determining our mental and bodily states. If it is a helpful thought, all the better, such as how Kui and his school define the power of thought. According to Flammarion, every thought considered as an emanation of the thinker, a thread spun out by the soul, silkworm, is a guna, behavior and acts with more or less intensity virtually as an agent called material acts, as a projectile or stone and may project itself afar. If a man thinks of murder, he emits into the atmosphere of thought a murder element that remains and returns to him. Imagine thought as it exists in man raised out of him, and as an active and energetic being endowed with an inner life of its own, and you have but a feeble illustration of that which fills a whole region, a whole universe beyond time. How near we are to this grand truth, that we actually are denizens of a universe of thought forms, that we are all each complex thought forms, compounded entirely of thought. We have scarcely recognized, even amongst those of us that have been devoting attention to practices of meditation and yoga, 
It has been the experience of many when meditating that they have been interfered with by particular kinds of thought, apparently coming from nowhere. And against this interference, there has, alas, been wasted a good deal of pious gassing by most acharyas. They have found it easier to say, be good and you will be happy. They have continued to make many generalizations, to tell you that the mind is the bugbear of all philosophers, that every time it wanders, it should be brought back by force and reapplied to the object. Generally, the object is Miss Kundalini with a tail in her mouth to modern Hindu practitioners. They continue to analyze nirvana, moksha, jhana, and to explore Hindu metaphysics utterly. The poor practitioner continues to have pious platitudes trumpeted forth to him, continues to be fobbed off with inane remarks on virtue and raja yoga, nana yoga, and such other rogas, diseases in his hour of need. Be it well understood of you that it is not necessary nor right to shut off natural activity of any kind, sahaja, thoughts, karma, do as one sits to meditation, come easily on before the threshold of consciousness. Oftentimes they are mean, clouded, inchoate, harmful. For in life there is much meanness, dosha. Man is often called on to acknowledge some degrading standard or fight for the very recognition of manhood. And what is the remedy? How shall we get rid of these thoughts? The answer of the Bhagavad Gita is that you should not effort to take the trouble even of attempting to reject, much less to accept any of these thoughts. Presently the thought atmosphere will clear, the smoke will disappear for the flame to burn brighter. Yes, if a man gets into a serious worry, it is doubtless well to face it and see what it means, and to get expert advice, such as the latent light culture literature can give gladly if the trouble does not smooth out. But in ordinary life, it is probably better to leave the roots of the unconscious to look after themselves. It is better to try to grow some flowers or fruit, including health of body and mind. When difficulties, apparently insurmountable, confront thee, all that thou hast to do is not to fight it out without knowing what you fight against, but to wait and see, to calmly observe what it is. Perchance it may pass off. Certainly it will clear. It will begin to work itself out and become less powerful. A Russian confrere, in translating the term Parjanya, the rain god of the Occidental Oriental, says that all that is seething in war, and the struggle for existence, of passion, pain, and the joy of victory, is not only perceptible in its effects as revealed to the physical senses, it may be seen as the atmospheric process in the spirit world, a sort of thunderstorm. For each thought has a form, is a sort of cloud or mist, and makes up in its electrical and magnetic potency a perfect analog to a rain cloud. The simile is further expanded by Fournier, Dalbe, and his New Lights on Immortality. On the earth, nearly a hundred thousand persons die every day, the great majority of them being unconscious purposeless monads. The atmosphere is full of them. They remain for some time in the atmosphere and form a cosmic environment or diffused consciousness which mingles with the subconscious at time and manifests in mediumistic and spiritistic phenomena. These monads are of course the multiplicities of thoughts that were not expended with the body that has been shed, and they are only aggregations not certainly with any power of persisting as such but mere aggregations of thought forms. Our point is here that the universe is peopled by these thought forms. 
and that it is quite possible for some of these thought forms to appear before our consciousness as we sit to meditate or sit to think. All that you have to do is to wait, wait till they pass on. As you can see for yourself, ideas are in the air around us. It is ideas that we see spread before us, spread before our consciousness. Ideas that govern and move all things. Guns, bayonets, men of war, aeroplanes are but outward symbols. These ideas are neither to be bayoneted or battened down. They are not to be shot down either. You cannot, of course, disperse or kill ideas in this way. They thrive and sprout, aye, even under the spilling of blood, especially under the spilling of blood. We have to deal with these ideas or thoughts in quite other ways. We have to recognize ourselves as not yet fully competent to deal single-handed, I mean with a superficial attention, with these ideas pouring on us, and different modes of treatment are prescribed for different forms of thoughts. It is impossible to frame a general law for dealing with all wrong thoughts, and attempts such as that of the categorical imperative of Kant or the congenital duty of the Eastern pseudo-yogi can only end in failure to grasp the principles of karma yoga. As says Ku, a form of particular suggestion, Nurdesa, the Bhagavad Gita calls it, is the quiet repetition of a single word. If your mind is worried and confused, whether by the thoughts that had been oppressing you till you sat to meditation, or that had been pouring on you, preventing your practice of mental gymnastics for that day, sit down, close your eyes, relax yourselves, and murmur slowly and reflectively the single word, OM, or CALM. Say it reverently, drawing it out to its full length and pausing a bit after each repetition. And curiously, Kui adds, this method has been found most applicable to the attainment of moral qualities. It shows how powerful are some simple means and how independent of the ends actually attained. Each man may use his word, Om, Amen, Allah, as he likes. All that is necessary is to follow the direction given and to use the mantra. We suggest the Om. You may wonder how such a simple word can produce a development of the moral qualities. The reason is given by Freud, the psychologist who has specially analyzed for us the workings of the group mind. A group, he says, is subject to the truly magical power of names or words. Words can provoke the most formidable tempests in the group mind and are also capable of stilling them. And again, he says, Reason and argument are incapable of combating certain words or formula. These words are uttered in solemnity in the presence of groups, and as soon as they have been pronounced, all heads are bowed with respect. Note this faculty of the group mind carefully. Realize herewithal that man's mind is after all a group mind, that it is a collection of thoughts, many milliards of them, that it is a collection of thoughts, many milliards of them, that is a collection of these thoughts, and you will find reason enough to apply by analogy all the postulates of group psychology to the individual human mentation. Thus you see the Aum and the auto-suggestion of Karma Yoga to still all worries. But in the use of the Aum, do not seek for results, continues the Gita. Do not expect any particular effect to follow on the utterance. To do so would first of all to be to distract the attention and lessen the efficacy of the Om, and secondly it would be a diversion away from the Om. 
do the work of pronunciation or utterance of the omen, do nothing else. Avoid extensions of the thought suggested, if any, by om by the very pronunciation itself. Centralize entirely on the om. Thus use every mantra. Use it as an auto-suggestion, affirming it to yourself by repetition and not by forcing it on your subconscious. Let the om in time form part of your being, replacing the thoughts of worry that had occurred, that may occur, unless superseded by the utterance of the om. This was the word, sound, that was, that has to be, has to prevail and be uttered. In the beginning, it was the word that was with God, i.e., with what is beyond, behind phenomena, such as the sense of God taken here. The word that is God, as far as our pragmatic experience goes, stilling all worries, solacing all griefs, as God, the God of the cults, can and does still solace. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.